This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hey everybody, earlier this week I played for you the audio of two physicians in California who held that press conference arguing against extended lockdowns over the coronavirus and offering both medical data on COVID-19 and hard data on the effects of shutting down the economy here and around the world. But what do other medical doctors think at this point about these lockdowns and some of the results of the lockdowns? We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Andrew Boston. I often talk to him, as you know, about his work as an Islamic scholar, but he is also a medical doctor and was with the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University as an associate professor of family medicine. I wanted to bring him back today in order to discuss some of the actual epidemiological and clinical evidence that he's been tracking on the coronavirus and get some of his thoughts on this fight over the extended lockdowns in America. Dr. Boston, it's wonderful to welcome you back. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me back, Janet. Uh, yeah, we're doing we're doing okay. Um, yeah, so so my background is is really in um, cardiovascular disease epidemiology and clinical trials, but but the principles are are bedrock principles, and they apply uh, they apply to infectious diseases as well. So yeah, as 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 you as you were alluding to, I, I've been I've been tracking particularly, um, you know, the 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 core issue, Janet, with these with these epidemics, pandemics. And it's it's you know understandably can be murky at clear, particularly with a virus like this that's that's shrouded in fear and you know and 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 some you know legitimate reasons for fear. It's its origins. Did it come out of a lab? Was it possibly engineered? Um, uh, the the horrific scenes you know in Wuhan itself in in Italy uh, and then it reaches the United States. So you you can you can you can understand the the, the fear that that brought, but you know the dust has settled. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, we've seen the lockdowns um, and what's emerging is you always need to know, OK, uh, and, and of course, there's been a lot of misrepresentation of the actual numbers of deaths. I mean, right. I mean so uh, th- that's that's always problematic that that can happen in flu pandemics, too. But but um, here there really does seem to be some, you know, sort of ghoulish manipulation. I don't know how else to describe it. But, but be, that, be that as it may, there's a numerator, which are your deaths from, from the infectious disease. And then there's your denominator, which is how many people are actually infected. And uh, th- that, that is classically in, in epidemiology obtained by what are called seroprevalence studies. So, so what they do is they capture the full range of people from those that were completely asymptomatic to those that suffer the worst life-threatening and sometimes lethal forms of, of the disease. And that, that, that it judges the exposure in terms of the body's ability to mount an antibody response. Hmm. And th- those kinds of studies are now pouring in from across the country and across the world. And what they're telling us uh, is that, indeed, uh, the the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, this coronavirus, 
is highly contagious, um, but that, you know, thank the Lord, the broadest spectrum of the disease is represented by those that are, that are barely symptomatic or truly have a, a upper respiratory sort of, you know, nose, throat, um, uh, manifestation uh, of the disease, and maybe some other strange uh, things too. You know, there's there's a, there's a diarrhea that's been reported with this, etc. But but really, a non-lethal form of the disease, particularly in those less than 65, in some cases less than 70 years old, uh, and with, and and certainly those without major comorbidities. So what's happening is that you're seeing. This, this ratio of, of those who are dying from this illness and those who are infected with this illness um, becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and approach not a, you know, not, a, not a seasonal flu with a good vaccination program. No, it's, that's not true. It's worse than that. But at least approach some of the pr- past uh, what are called pandemic flus where either the vaccination wasn't properly matched in advance or it was ineffective for whatever reason. Um, and, and, and those were not situations where we locked down economies. In 1957-58, we had a pandemic influenza A, H2N2 type, and it killed, you know, 116,000 people in this country when our population was only about 172 million. Um, and it, ha- it generated, it had there were about 45 million infections in the United States, and it generated a case fatality ratio of about 0.26%. Uh, now th- that's high. That's actually quite high. Yeah. Um, but but the economy was not locked down. The country pretty rapidly got herd immunity because it just spread through like wildfire, which basically really is what SARS has done, even with some of the lockdowns. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, it, it 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 we because we didn't shut the economy down, there was a drop in the GDP of about a percent or so. But it really was within normal variation for the GDP. Now, we've already seen just the first quarter drop, and it's probably going to be you know, truly catastrophic the second quarter. Uh, and that brings a lot of you know, consequences with it. Yep. And, and, and so, um, and the unique thing so far as it's playing out with, with SARS-CoV-2, uh, despite some hysterical oddball stories, is that this is targeting, not only targeting the elderly per se, it's targeting nursing homes. Yes. Nursing homes uh, in, in certainly the biggest clusters of states where there's been fatalities uh, account for 40 percent of the deaths in my home state of, of Rhode Island. We're, we're closer to 75 to 80 percent. Mm. And there are other states that that are that are closer to us. Uh, I believe uh, Minnesota. And there, there are a number of states where it's 50 percent plus. But overall, my, my, my sense is that perhaps as many as, as 40% of the fatalities across the United States are coming from nursing home populations. Right. And these are not dispensable people. No. But, 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 it, but it gives you an inkling into how we could have done this differently, protected them, and let the, let the, the, the relatively invulnerable to certainly much less vulnerable to death population generate a herd immunity. Well, it's interesting when you mentioned that that particular case in 1957 and 1958 of influenza A, H2N2, that pandemic, nobody has referenced that. Nobody has talked about the fact that I've seen at least, and I'm on the news feed all the time, about 116,000 deaths in the United States and there was no lockdown. Well, I'm remotely raising my hand over here. I know you are. I meant <laughs> no, you. I know, I know. But you know what I mean? I it's nobody yeah, exactly. is, You don't have any reporters going to Trump in, in the 50s, no. not Trump, but you know, in the 50s going to the president 
president and saying, do you think a president who has 116,000 deaths from H2N2 should be reelected? I mean, yeah, and, and no, it, I, I know it's, it's insane. It's really. And, and, and also, but, but, you know, obviously, Janet, we're a very, very different country. We have different expectations, uh, you know, um, but, but, when you look at oh, and that was by the way, that was with a a sort of um, uh, very rapidly developed immunization program. Wow! Um, but but they don't always work. I mean, I mean that's the other thing that's that's concerning to me is that we're supposed to you know wait for this holy grail of a, of a vaccine. You know, SARS-CoV-1, uh, the the antecedent, the antecedent of this, um, was actually more aggressive in a, in a sense in terms of of a, a truly higher case fatality ratio, but it burned itself out. There was a, apparently a promising vaccine. They couldn't apply it because they, you know, the, the disease sort of disappeared. Right. Uh, and, right. and, and sometimes that's the way these things go. Uh, you know, this may burn itself out, too. It kind of looks like it like it is now. Thank God. Well, and, and uh, any time, though, that we get any sort of good news, there's always some leftist who steps in and talks about, no, it's going to be even worse. It's going to come back a second time and I more know. people. It's I like, know. how do you know we've never been through this before? Well, it's gotten to be, you know, very, very unsettling, very unsavory that, that, that you're, you're hearing these, these doom and gloom voices constantly terrifying people, terrifying people. Yes. I, I mean, that, 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 is, that is so inappropriate, and, it's, and, it, and, and particularly when it comes from medical people and then these modelers. I mean, mm. you know, the hysterical guy from, from the uh, Imperial College of London, this guy, Neil Ferguson, yep. I mean, he has such an awful pedigree. In 2000, he was telling, he was telling the Brits that, that um, uh, um, spongiform encephalopathy, so-called mad cow disease, was this variant form was going to was going to not just you know you weren't just going to get it from eating infected meat anymore it was somehow going to cross species and there were going to be 500,000 deaths oh my goodness i remember that you know what hang on just a moment we do need to pause for a quick break on janet meffer today we'll be right back with dr andrew boston stay with us Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update. The global COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact on the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. Sheltering in orders across the country are spiking the number of unplanned pregnancies, and the Preborn call center is inundated with girls calling us. Contrary to government mandates to stop elective surgeries, Planned Parenthood remains open, consuming scarce medical supplies, all the while aborting babies. Our clinics are offering free, Christ-centered alternatives to these women in this time of crisis. But our clinics need your help now more than ever. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and a direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in this time of need? Your gift of $28 will provide one free ultrasound. $140 will provide five free ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck as 
a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back. Who do we listen to? We have people all over the map at this point on these lockdowns over the coronavirus pandemic and an increasing number of doctors are starting to go public. You had those doctors in California saying in that press conference that a lockdown versus non-lockdown scenario in Norway versus Sweden, for example, did not produce a statistically different number of deaths. You had the chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx saying, listen, we got to open the country again. The wave has crested. I'm worrying about non-coronavirus virus care for patients who aren't coming in. And thirdly, and I think this might be the most important point, there is an inordinate fear that is misguiding the public response to COVID-19. Now, Dr. Andrew Boston, a medical doctor himself, has been with me, is with me right now and has been tracking some of the medical data on this. One of my questions to you, Andy, is this issue of data is all over the place. People seem to be finding, you know, whatever they want to to back right. up whatever their points are. Because here I am in Texas, we're beginning to see a soft opening up of the economy. Uh, elsewhere, you have states like Maine talking about requiring tourists to quarantine before they can even visit the state in the late summer. I mean, and it seems to be a divide between red and blue states in large measure. So what do you think is going on here? And what do you think about these other doctors and what they're saying? Oh, I, what, what the, the, the ER doctors in, in California, I, 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 completely, I completely agree with them. Um, because, again, they're, they're, they're arguing for the same. And this is, by the way, this is very classic epidemiology. Lockdowns are not classic epidemiology. Um, it, it certainly, certainly locking entire societies down, it, it, including both the vulnerable and relatively invulnerable. That, yeah. That's just not the way it's done. Uh, and, and again, particularly as, as we're getting real data on this virus, you know, the other thing that's not been played up enough is how, um, particularly influenza, um, influenza A viruses are, are much more lethal in children. Children are not only not, not succumbing to this virus in, 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 you know, other, other than the most, you know, rare cases with chronic diseases, uh, but but they're they're actually look to be relatively resistant to becoming infected and to passing it on. It's much more likely in studies out of the Netherlands and Australia that that children get infected from adults rather than than vice versa. Hmm. And, and so it argues that that of all people, they should be in school. Yeah, they, they should be going to school. Um, but but when you start to look at these at these studies that are not based on you know taking a person who's symptomatic, relatively sick, swabbing their throat, getting, getting some evidence of the, of the virus itself. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a test of, uh, that picks up a fragment of the virus's own uh, genetic code, the RNA. Um, and so you've got an active case. 
you know, the, the seroprevalence study that I talked about at the beginning is looking at antibodies. Now that we're doing antibody studies, including one of the biggest ones w- was done in New York itself, they're ratcheting up their estimate in New York City that 25% of the population already has antibodies. And I think that number is going to grow yeah. because the, it always it takes – this is a little slow for the antibody re- response to, to, to SARS-CoV-2. It's more like three weeks. Yeah. And, you know, so – so they're 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 probably they had one estimate that was twenty one point two percent, and a week later it was twenty four point seven percent. So you know it's it's probably going to grow, but at any rate, that shows they're on the way to herd immunity, and, and that word is thrown around. But basically, what it means is that there's there's a neutralizing uh, uh, antibody response and an antibody response that the person is a uh, probably protected against the, the disease. I mean, that's that's the way it typically works for these for these uh, uh, viral pathogens, uh, and they're also not infectious. So, uh, and, and as that number grows, then then this population circulates, and again, they're both immune in the sense that they're they're resistant to the disease, and they're not infectious well, to others who are vulnerable to it. Let me and, ask. And that, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm finish. Sorry. I'm sorry. You go ahead. I just had a question in that regard. So, so that, so that so that you see even in in the in the in the worst case scenarios so like in in New York again they're they're moving on towards you know progressively towards a herd immunity um, and also in Italy in the in the hot zone in Italy that was hit in northern in Lombardy and the and the, and the um, uh, in, in the municipalities there blood donors and this is a very interesting population to screen because they're healthy. You show up for blood donation, you know, you got a fever, they won't take your blood. Right. Uh, so, so blood donors, 30 to 60% of the blood donors in that region that was hard hit have, have evidence of antibodies. Mm. Um, and, and Denmark did a massive study of its population. Now, they've been locked down so that's a much lower, you know, much lower, common, much lower commonality of having the disease. But when they applied the, the background uh, denominator from their blood donors to the entire population to get a more accurate, you know, estimate of, of sort of undiagnosed infections. The case fatality ratio for those uh, less than 70, and this was just published yesterday from Denmark, dropped down to 0.08%. Hmm. And, and that's a very large swath of the population. It's it, it's, it, it certainly is the lower risk, uh, less than 70, although bringing it up to age 69, and that's what they did in these blood donors, and apply, you know, that that's very reassuring. And it, it also helps yeah. you target who does have to be protected. Well, let me ask you this, because you mentioned some some really important things there, and this is all really fascinating information. But when you say from an epidemiologist perspective, this is not what it's done. This is not the way you do it, that you lock down entire healthy populations. Even when you look at some of the statutes in law, like in Idaho, it talks about the right to quarantine and isolate people. But that is sick people or people who have been exposed to a deadly disease, not people who are totally healthy and you just shut down the economy. A lot of people are asking the question, why is Donald Trump doing this? Why is Fauci allowed to at least presume run the show on all of this and why are they making people lock down for weeks on end and then say oh well first it was about not overwhelming hospitals now we have to get a vaccine now we have to get millions of more people right. tested what is going on do you think well i, I look I, I think I think the president was terrified by these models and everything, and 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 I I, I I think I think that that's what 
caused him to react in a way that we might think is a little atypical for him. Um, and, and when he's told the 2.2 million, and, and it comes from that Imperial College guy, you know, the one that talked about 500,000 deaths from mad cow disease. <laughs> right. Just quickly to divert back to that story, in three years after he made that prediction, I think there were less than 60 deaths in, 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 uh, in Great Britain. Good. He also modeled something like 250 to 500 million deaths in 2005-06 from, from, from avian flu. Mm. You know, I, I mean... But but that's the guy that provided this estimate, and and you know I, I would think that you know with with, with you're not he, the president is, is is a good businessman, but he's not an infectious disease epidemiologist, and if that's what he's being told and it's being reinforced by people like Burks and Fauci, uh, although they tend to speak out of ten sides of their mouth, um, <laughs> you know you can begin to see why he's why he's terrified about this and the unknowns, you know where it came from exactly. Um, the panic that it that it wrought in in China and 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 Italy, I understand some of the early you know draconian measures, but but it's played itself out. Yes, uh, right. You know, and we've had indicators all along. We had the cruise ship, uh, the uh, you know where where it, it did not it, it it again it attacked the elderly on that cruise ship. Yep. But but the but the big swaths of those thirty seven hundred people you know were were basically asymptomatic. You know, so we got an early hint that whoa, wait a minute, you know, and. And so, you know, I, 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 what I, what I object to, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we agree here is, is that, is that, you know, he's, he's got to start maybe setting aside or jettisoning these people, yeah. these medical people, and, and maybe bringing in people, you know, there's some excellent epidemiologists at Stanford that have been dead on since the beginning, warning that, you know, draconian measures like this may, may not be the right thing to do, protect the vulnerable. Right. And those voices, unfortunately, you know, did, did not prevail. Well, that's right. They didn't prevail. And and I'm hoping that what President Trump has in mind right now is to see how some of these soft openings of states like Texas and Georgia and some of the other states that are beginning to wade back into the pool, as it were, uh, see how that goes and kind of go from there. But an awful lot is going to be lost in the interim because you have so many people, even here in Texas, I read a story about a restaurant owner who said, well, we're only allowed initially to have 25% capacity for my restaurant. It's not even worth Worth opening again because I still have oh. to pay a hundred percent of the bills to open. So yes, you know it I depends on see. what what happens with these businesses. But can we recover from this? Do you think by opening up? Do you think the herd immunity will kick in? How confident do you feel based on the data that a soft open is the best bet, or maybe a harder open than we've seen? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I, just looking, just you know. On, on the basis of the seroprevalence data, everywhere you look, it's, it's even in places that, you know, lock down, you know, quicker or whatever, uh, it's, it's, it's yeah, 50 to 100 to, to many more times that, that uh, many more times that common than, 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 than just the, the throat testing, which, again, just picks up the, you know, very, very active infections. So it, it tells me that there's a lot of, lot of people, millions of people in the country that have been exposed and, and, and that have an immune response to it. Um, so I, 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 I wish that the restaurants, I, I guess I don't, you know, I'm not a business person, but, but I wish that the restaurants would, would by and large, go along with, with, these, with these softer openings and maybe still do, do as much takeout as they've been doing, yeah. um, you know, because we've got to get things moving, Janet. The yeah. economy is, is really suffering. And I, and I appreciate, no, I appreciate their, their um, you know, their, their concern. 
uh, I guess it's, it is cheaper for them to stay closed altogether rather than open up at 25%. I, I don't know how to calculate that, but, but I think the momentum should be in the direction of, of at least soft o- o- openings, uh, uh, so, so that, so that we can get people circulating again. Uh, the, the hospitals, I think so many of the hospitals, I'm sure a lot of the hospitals in Texas were underutilized. Oh, they yeah. weren't hit like New York no. and, and New Jersey were. And even New York and New Jersey didn't use the overflow capacity of, of the naval ship, right, um, you right. know, uh, or or this massive, incredible structure that that the that the um, Army Corps of Engineers made uh, in 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 the Javits Center, or 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 Franklin Graham's you know very noble gesture of setting up uh, uh, you know tent facilities in Central Park. I mean, these spillover facilities were were barely utilized, which says in, a lot. In the, in the worst place. Yep, you're totally right about that. Well, check out andrewbostom.org, and you can follow him on social media for all of this data. Thank you so much, Andy, for the update. You too. Thanks for being with us. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, the wallop of the pandemic, as we know, has left much of America in economic pain. And in response came Congress's passage of the Recovery and Stimulus Package, known as the CARES Act. That stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. But should clergy be able to receive the same kind of relief funds that other eligible Americans get? Well, activists like those over at Americans United for the Separation of Church and State say no. But in a recent piece over at Real Clear Religion, my next guest says the arguments against clergy relief are wrong. So we're going to get some thoughts on it now from Mike Berry, General Counsel at First Liberty Institute. So good to talk to you again, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So fill people in a little bit. There may be listeners who say the CARES Act. I think I know what that's all about. But can you just tell us what that stipulates and how clergy are eligible under this CARES Act? Sure. Well, you know, the CARES Act uh, is, is basically the recovery and, recovery and stimulus package that is sort of coming in in uh, a number of phases that Congress has passed in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's really uh, meant to, to help those affected financially by the fallout from, from the pandemic and, and a lot of the, uh, the stay-at-home orders that have been issued. And, you know, there have been a lot of businesses and nonprofits and, and others who have been financially affected by, by the pandemic. And so the, the, the money that Congress has appropriated is meant to go to those who have been affected and to help them recover uh, and, and then be, you know, financially, uh, uh, you know, aid towards getting back on track, you know, towards reopening the country and, and, and getting their businesses open and running. And that also includes uh, nonprofits, ministries, religious organizations, churches, and other places of worship, et cetera. 
Right. Yeah. But of course, the activists who wrote this letter to the U.S. Small Business Administration are not happy about this. They say you can't use taxpayer dollars to pay clergy salaries. Again, right there in the name, separation of church and state. They don't like this over at that group. But but what do you say in response to these arguments that the taxpayer dollars cannot be sent to clergy, that this is just out of bounds? Well, these arguments, first of all, they're, they, they ignore history. You know, the, the notion that, oh, you know, well, we can't we can't uh, use taxpayer dollars to pay the salaries of, of ordained clergy. That would that would clearly violate the Constitution is the refrain that we typically hear. But, of course, all you have to do is, is study a little bit of U.S. history and you would learn that uh, at the founding, in fact, the very first continental uh, or not continental, excuse me, the very first U.S. Congress um, uh, after our nation was founded in 1789, the first Congress passed a, a law allowing for the payment of legislative chaplains. Mm. So we began paying chaplains who are ordained clergy as far back as 1789 in the first Congress. And of course, uh, you can also look to our military, which uh, even predating our, our country's existence, uh, you know, in the adoption of the Constitution, we had clergy in the form of chaplains serving in our military, and their salaries were funded. And uh, even as recently as, you know, about five years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of having uh, paid clergy in, uh, in uh, legislatures, whether at the state or federal level. So we've, you know, we've known about having clergy and, and having their, their salaries paid for with tax money for you know, well over 250 years, and it's never been a problem until now, apparently. And, and it's all because you've got groups, again, like the Americans United for Separation of Church and State and others, who I, I can think of no other reason than simply anti-religious or anti-religious freedom bigotry. Right. Well, yeah. Are we back to that issue that has come up, for example, before the Supreme Court previously, where you can't discriminate against uh, Christians, for example, if you're going to let everybody else do something like that, that tire case, you know, that came up uh, with that playground issue. And is that one of those kinds of arguments from a legal perspective that is relevant here, that if everybody else is eligible under certain parameters, it would be unconstitutional to eliminate clergy from that pool? That, that's exactly right. It, it, it's very closely related to that. In fact, uh, this issue arose in a somewhat similar uh, uh, fashion just uh, a year ago, just last year, in a federal appeals court. Uh, another organization, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, their name should tell you what they're all about, <laughs> uh, they filed a lawsuit challenging the fact that clergy, uh, and I don't know, you know, some people know this, and um, some, many people are surprised to find this out. If if your religious institution, such as your denomination, provides uh, housing for their clergy, that there can be uh, uh, tax breaks on some of that housing. Uh, so it doesn't always apply, but sometimes it does. And, and so some clergy are eligible for tax breaks. Let's just put it that way for for the housing that is provided for them by their religious organizations. And and there was a challenge to this, saying, you know, well, you can't do that. That's a, you know, you're helping. Religion, you're aiding religion with financial uh, support, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the appeals court, the, the federal appeals court, rejected that, and they actually pointed out. They said, "Look, they said there are many non-religious employees in this country who receive receive tax breaks and tax exemptions for their work-related housing." And they pointed out examples of first responders, you know, fire, you know, firefighters and EMTs, stuff like that. Teachers can receive tax breaks sometimes. Military personnel. 
they're all eligible for the same type of tax relief. Why should clergy, why should religious people be treated any differently just because they happen to be religious? Right. That would be patently unfair. Right. That would be unconstitutional. And so that's the argument that we're making at First Liberty Institute. And look, we're, and we're if you are a clergy and you are eligible and have received any of the, the CARES Act funding, or perhaps you, know, you belong to a denomination who's received some of this, uh, and, and, and one of these groups goes after you and tries to threaten you, you, know, you need to call us or, or reach out to us online or whatever, because we're here to help, and, and we'll represent you know, an organization free of charge uh, if their CARES Act funding is threatened by, by you know, some of these anti-religion groups. Well, that's good. And, you know, something else that you mentioned in your piece, Mike, was the fact of of how much the religious community, Christian churches and so many organizations actually contribute to the economy. Can you speak to that issue? Because I think that's a very relevant point as well. Yes. And thank you for bringing it up. Actually, that, you know, as I was thinking about this in the context of the the COVID-19 pandemic and and knowing how many people are, are hurting right now, and just thinking about what it will take for this country to make a comeback. And, and, and America is, is, is a country filled with com- great comeback stories, right? Yes. And so, um, and I, you know, it's going to take all of us. And, and, and we're going to have to band together both, the, you know, the communities of faith and, and those who, who don't have, you know, don't believe in, in, in uh, a higher being. We all are going to have to stick together if we're going to get through this and recover. But let's make no mistake. Um, and I was fascinated by this. There, there was a recent study that was done that said that religion is actually one of the most powerful economic engines in the United States. Hmm. And it's sort of the sleeping giant, an economic sleeping giant. And according to the study, uh, which is linked to in, in the article that I wrote, uh, the, the religious community in America, and, 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 and we use that term writ large, you know, just it, it com- everything combined, you know, churches, religious nonprofits, uh, institutions, et cetera, et cetera. If you combine all that together, they contribute a combined $1.2 trillion, that's trillion with a T, <laughs> dollars to the U.S. economy every year. That's not just historic. I mean, every year, $1.2 trillion is pumped into the U.S. economy by the religious community. And if you do the math, that's more than all than the top ten tech giants combined: hmm. Facebook, Google, Apple, you name it. Right? You combine the top ten of those, and they don't contribute as much to the economy as the America's faith community does. And that's something that we cannot overlook as we get ready to, to try and reopen the country and get back on our feet again. We're going to have to lean very heavily on America's faith community to do that. And so why on earth would we even contemplate discriminating against them unconstitutionally and saying, well, you're ineligible to receive the same aid that, that the rest of us are? Yeah. That's just wrong. Well, it's a really fair point and a really good point because you've mentioned all these other times where, you know, it just is very obvious how the courts have ruled in favor of, you know, the parsonage exemption and paying these salaries for chaplains and so forth. It just makes a lot of sense. Mike Berry from First Liberty Institute, firstliberty.org is their website. Always good to talk to you, Mike. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. You take care. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today.
If you could ease the suffering of a persecuted Christian right now, would you? Hi, it's Janet Mefford, and I know you would. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those who are persecuted, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere suffers, we suffer together. These believers live where evangelism is criminalized, where churches are burned, and where Bibles are scarce. They need the hope found only in God's Word, and your gift today lets them know they're not forgotten. For only $5, a believer like Anna in Africa will receive a Bible, be discipled in her new faith, and trained to share Christ. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And through the end of April, there's a Bible for Bible match that will help us send God's word to as many persecuted Christians as possible. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, call now, 800-YES-WORD. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. It is always a little shocking when you see certain public officials go over the top with what they put out. And President Trump certainly gets his criticism for what he puts out on Twitter. But Bill de Blasio is the one who's now getting it. And I'm glad to see him getting it. He's getting it from both sides of the political aisle for tweeting out, my message to the Jewish community and all communities is this simple. The time for warnings has passed. I have instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This is about stopping this disease and saving lives, period. Now, what was he referring to? He was referring to the fact that there was a funeral in Williamsburg that had drawn hundreds of Orthodox Jews to the streets. They were mourning a rabbi who had died of COVID-19. And yet... What is it with this guy? He's already gone out on Twitter previously to slam the Jewish community and talk about, I will close down synagogues permanently and other houses of worship. Not exactly his phrasing, but he he cited synagogues and he talks like this. What do you think people are going to start thinking? Boy, you're awfully anti-Semitic, Bill de Blasio. What's your problem? And you're cracking down on people for going to a funeral. And a lot of these people had masks on. But you're meanwhile, you're running around the park to get exercise. And that, that's fine. You can be in the park getting exercise. But everybody else, you better lock down for the rest of your lives or at least the foreseeable future. Well, Eyewitness News ABC 7 in New York reported there was very bad blood and backlash after the funeral issue. Listen to cut one. There is backlash from that gathering, but a lot more backlash from the mayor's response 
to that gathering. This all starting with that gathering of people, hundreds of people out here on Bedford Avenue. Now, this was a scene last night outside of the synagogue. This was the processional after a funeral for a rabbi who reportedly died from coronavirus complications. Hundreds of people were in the streets. NYPD was also there. And remember, up until this point, they said that they were here to educate, not ticket. There were several people with masks, but also many without masks on. The gathering obviously not allowed under the governor's executive order. And Mayor de Blasio tweeting that what happened here was unacceptable, going on to tweet that this will not be tolerated and that he has instructed the NYPD to proceed immediately to summons or even arrest those who gather in large groups. This moment has been building for weeks with reports of underground small classes and yeshivas and some synagogues still open. The mayor responding to those reports before this funeral. I had a, a conference call with key Jewish leaders around the city and there was tremendous support on that call for shutting down. And, and it was painful, obviously, for people, but for shutting down shuls, shutting down all sorts of uh, community gatherings. And I think the leadership of the Jewish community, the rabbinical leadership have been absolutely united in saying all of that has to change. And I've seen a whole lot of adherence to that. Okay, there you hear from Mayor Bill de Blasio. And by the way, he got a lot of swift criticism, as I mentioned before. There was one tweet from Kalman Yeager, who is an Orthodox Jewish member of the New York City Council, who said, Mr. Mayor, your words are unacceptable. To condemn our entire community over one group of people is something you would not do to any other ethnic group. And I know you know enough to know that you know this. So this is... (laughs) Unacceptable. I mean, can you imagine what would happen to a Republican who did this, especially when you look at what has happened in New York City in terms of anti-Semitic attacks? And I just find it unbelievable how the progressives are not held to the same standard that the left would hold Republicans to or conservatives to. Uh, Governor Ralph Northam, Exhibit A, why does that guy still have a job after what he was caught doing with his blackface and his infanticide comments? There's no way a Republican would have survived that. But as we know, there's a double standard. Now, I want to play another cut for you because Governor Ron DeSantis had some really good things to say about the real differences in what has been put out there to make people fearful versus the reality on the ground. And he went after the media because the media was all all over him, really, for his response to the coronavirus pandemic in that state, because they said, oh, you didn't close your state soon enough. You should have closed it down sooner. Florida is going to be a hotbed. Florida is going to be the next New York. And actually, this is what Governor DeSantis had to say on that score. This is cut three. Governor DeSantis, you did face quite a bit of criticism for not closing your state as soon as some did. Uh, there's a yeah, lot of attention. What have the results been? You look at some of the most draconian orders that have been issued in some of these states and compare Florida in terms of our hospitalizations per 100,000, in terms of our fatalities per 100,000. I mean, you go from D.C., Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, you name it. Florida's done better, and I'm not criticizing those states, but everyone in the media was saying Florida was gonna be like New York or Italy, and that has not happened because we understood we have a big diverse state, we understood the outbreak was not uniform throughout the state, and we had a tailored and measured approach 
that not only helped our numbers be way below what anyone predicted, but also did less damage to our state going forward. I had construction going on, the road projects, but we did it in a safe way, and we did it, I think, in a way that is probably more sustainable um, over the long term. So I think people can go back and look at all the criticism and then look now, and nobody predicted that Florida would. We have challenges. This is not an easy situation. We've had people in the hospital, but I am now in a situation where I have less than 500 people at a state of 22 million on ventilators as of last night, and I have 6,500 ventilators that are sitting idle, unused throughout the state of Florida. Isn't that amazing? 500 ventilators for 22 million people. And it was all about the ventilators. Remember that? That was just a few weeks ago. We need more ventilators. Ventilators. Now you have some medical professionals who are coming forward and saying the ventilators are doing more harm than good in many cases. It's not that nobody needs a ventilator, but they're noticing that the ventilators can can go the other way for some of these patients, that some of the oxygen levels in the blood are not fixed by a ventilator and a ventilator can aggravate what actually is going on. So that we have information coming at us like a fire hose every single day. And how in the world can you read everything and see everything? This is why it's so important to pick your news sources. Oh, and by the way, I got to bring this to your attention while we're on this subject. Did you hear about the homeschooling parents that got in trouble for not practicing social distancing adequately enough? This is from Reason.com. It was early in March. COVID fears were on the rise and two Kentucky parents known as Bill and Christy were new to the state of Kentucky and they needed to open up a bank account. And so they took their seven kids to the bank with them because they both needed to be there. By the time they returned home from their errand, a child protective services caseworker and a law enforcement officer were waiting at the door to investigate them for child abuse. Yep, child abuse. That's according to Jim Mason of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. He blames the false report on panic over the coronavirus social distancing rules. A letter from Child Services confirmed the existence of the complaint. The parents are homeschoolers. Christy had moved to Kentucky in advance of Bill, who had remained in New York City finishing up work. When they arrived at the bank, the parents opted to let the two oldest children wait in the car. The other five had to accompany them into the building, which had a COVID-19 warning sign on the door. They were not treated warmly according to Mason, which you can imagine would be the case. The teller immediately interrogated Bill and Christie about why they had brought five kids into the bank at one time. The teller told them they could not get within six feet of her. They needed to take the kids out. Christie explained the children were too young to be left unsupervised by an adult and neither she nor Bill could take them elsewhere because they were opening a joint account. They both had to be there. Bill stayed with the children away from the counter. Christie opened the account, feeling self-conscious as the staff whispered about her. That's fun. When Bill walked to the counter to show his New York ID and to sign, the bank staff asked why Bill's and Christie's IDs were from different states. You know, the paranoia that is now mounting because of the fear that people have. And then I guess an investigator actually wanted to know what homeschool curriculum they used. I mean, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be tempting in that situation to go, well, um, we use the anti-vaccine publica- publications for our children and every single subject that we study with the kids in school, it, it always has an anti-vaccine, anti-science bent. I mean, just to make fun of them, like, come on. Is there no reasonable reaction to any of this? No, not when everybody has been whipped up into a state of panic. And I, and I said this earlier, and Dr. Boston said it earlier in the show, 
it was important to do the lockdowns. I still believe this at the outset because we didn't have the data. We didn't know enough about the coronavirus and how many people would die and what the effects might be. We had to do what was prudent and wise. And I totally back that. But it changed after six weeks being on lockdown where we begin to see the models were totally wrong, not to mention that we've had some success, for example, with these hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin uh, trials. And in fact, now you have some other medical groups coming out and saying that's actually good. You shouldn't deny that that's a good treatment in a lot of cases for some of these patients who have COVID-19. But boy, when you start running away with your fear and your freak out, who's being anti-science now? It is a contagious disease. We do need to be careful. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is losing your country because people are freaking out and not getting the information that they need in order to make a scientifically sound assessment of what is going on. I support that. we got to leave it there. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time.